Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. Let's get into it. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com. There's more blasts in Crimea. Uh, an explosion hit a Russian ap- ammunition depot in northern Crimea on Tuesday, injuring two people in an incident the Russian Defense Ministry described as an act of sabotage. Russian authorities said that a fire broke out at the depot, causing the ammunition to detonate. A senior Ukrainian official speaking on the condition of anonymity to the Washington Post said that the blast was a Ukrainian special forces operation. And this comes after last week we saw explosions at a Russian airfield in Crimea, pretty major explosions that apparently destroyed nine Russian warplanes. And Moscow, they downplayed that incident. They said that it was an accident uh, while uh, we saw Ukrainian officials also claim to the media that it was a Ukrainian special forces operation. Ukraine hasn't officially taken credit for that blast. but So this comes shortly after that. It's kind of a sign that this might be an escalation of the war. Um, Again, with this attack that happened on Tuesday, Kiev has not taken credit officially. But Ukrainian officials came out, you know, celebrating the incident, and they hinted that Ukraine's forces might have been responsible. An advisor to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky wrote on Twitter that, quote, Crimea of a normal country is about the Black Sea, mountains, recreation, and tourism, but Crimea occupied by Russians is about warehouse explosions and high risk of death for invaders and thieves, demilitarization in action, end quote. So that's a pretty strong hint that Ukraine was behind it, or at least that's what they want to portray. But again, we saw Russia call it sabotage. They're not saying it was an accident. Um, and now this comes after Ukrainian officials said that they were going to start targeting Crimea. And they said that they could do it using U.S.-provided weapons. There's no indication that... In either of these incidents, U.S. weapons were used. It seems more like um, maybe an explosive was used or something like that. We really don't know, but it doesn't look like they've used any kind of U.S.-provided rocket systems or artillery systems to launch these attacks. But it's still, you know, this risks a major escalation because, you know, Ukraine could potentially start using U.S. weapons on Crimea And the U.S. has a rule for the weapons that it's sending Ukraine that they don't want them to use these arms to target Russian territory. There's also been, throughout the war, a few attacks inside Russian territory, not Crimea, inside mainland Russia. But again, Ukraine kind of did a similar thing. They didn't officially take credit. They hinted that they did it. And who else could have done it, really? But the U.S. doesn't want Ukraine to use these weapons to attack Russian territory, but Crimea is different. Russia has controlled Crimea since 2014. It took the peninsula after the U.S. backed the ousting of Viktor Yanukovych, the former Ukrainian president. They took the peninsula without firing a shot. People voted in a referendum to join Russia. But, um, you know, to Russia, Crimea is Russia, but Ukraine and the U.S. don't recognize it as Russia. So this ban on Ukraine using U.S. arms on doesn't appear to apply to Crimea. I asked the State Department if it does, and they told me Crimea is Ukraine. So that indicates 
they don't care if Ukraine uses these weapons on the peninsula. Okay, so the next one here, Estonia to cancel visas of more than 50,000 Russians. Estonia is set to close its borders to more than 50,000 Russians with previously issued visas this week, a move that came after Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky called for Western nations to ban all Russian travelers. So the ban will come into effect on August 18th, and it will revoke an EU short-stay visa. According to Reuters, about 2,500 Russians cross the border into Estonia each day, and more than half of them use these, this type of visa. Estonia is the first EU country to take such a drastic action after Zelensky's demand. Finland, which shares an over 800-mile border with Russia, that announced Tuesday that it would also take a- action against Russian travelers by slashing Russian visas by 90%. So they'll only process 10% of the visas that they get. Um, And Finland said that it plans to propose a joint EU policy on Russian visas at an EU foreign minister's meeting at the end of August. Estonia and the other Baltic nations of Latvia and Lithuania appear to be on board for this plan. And, you know, when... uh, Really, the EU countries, you know, that have been sanctioning Russia, they most of them have banned Russian flights, so Russians can't directly fly from Russia to most of Europe and most of North America too. Um, but you've apparently there's Russian travelers, you know, they're crossing into Estonia, they're crossing into Finland, and then flying from there. So they're not happy about that i guess zelensky is not and when zelensky de- made this demand of the western countries of european countries he said that the whole population of russia was responsible for putin's war in ukraine and said that they should all be punished for it and estonia echoed zelensky when justifying this ban that they put in place the estonian foreign minister said quote we have to admit that Russian society, by and large, also bears passive moral responsibility for these atrocities which takes place on Ukrainian soil, end quote. So just imagine that standard being applied to the U.S. But again, you know, this isn't going to hurt Putin. This is just going to make things more difficult for ordinary Russians. You know, on the border of Estonia, there's a lot of relatives, you know, Russians have relatives on the other side of the border. There's going to be some exemptions for these short stay visas that include if you're visiting an immediate family member. But the Reuters report, it quoted a Russian woman who visits her family's uh, graves in Estonia. And that's why she goes over there a lot. And she's worried that this this ban is going to affect her. So it's going to do nothing like all these sanctions. Putin's not going to be affected or his inner circle. And it's just going to hurt, you know, your everyday people. All right. So the next one here, the U.S. carries out an ICBM test that it delayed over China drills. So on Tuesday, the U.S. military announced that it launched a test of a Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missile after the launch was delayed over China's drills around Taiwan that came in the wake of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. The U.S. Air Force Global Strike Command said that the ICBM was launched from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. It was unarmed and equipped with a test re-entry vehicle, which traveled about 4,200 miles 
and splashed down near the Marshall Islands. So, I mean, they basically shot this missile across the Pacific. And the Minuteman III, it's a nuclear-capable missile produced by Boeing. It has a range of over 6,000 miles. So the Air Force Global Strike Command said that the test launch, uh, you know, they downplayed the idea that it was had anything to do with current global tensions. They said similar tests have occurred more than 300 times before and that this test is not a result of current world events. And they said that it verifies, you know, that the U.S. has a nuclear deterrent by conducting these tests. And the Pentagon, they delayed the tests. They said that they delayed this test to reduce because they didn't want to raise tensions with China. It was originally planned when China was holding its largest ever military exercises around Taiwan that it did in response to Pelosi. So the U.S. says in one hand, you know, they canceled the, the test and they say that they don't want to ratchet up tensions, but they're also planning to send ships and planes into the Taiwan Strait soon. And that's certainly going to escalate things. Um, but I just mentioned at the end here, you know, we saw the missile land near the Marshall Islands. And the U.S. has a very dark history of weapons testing in the Marshall Islands from 1946 to 1958. 67 nuclear tests were conducted at these islands most infamously known as the Bikini Atoll, where the U.S. forced the people that live there to leave the Bikini Islands, and then they destroyed it in nuclear tests. And to this day, it's uninhabitable due to the radiation levels. And the U.S. has refused to properly compensate you know, the people of the Marshall Islands that have health problems and stillborn babies because of the radiation levels and the environmental damage that the testing has caused. Um, yeah, so there's still, you know, testing stuff around there. Okay, so the next one here, China's U.S. ambassador says that the U.S. has gone too far over Taiwan. The Chinese ambassador to the U.S., Qin Gang, he held a press conference at a private home in Washington on Tuesday to discuss U.S. policy toward Taiwan in the wake of Pelosi's provocative visit. So Kin, he took his post in Washington last summer, said that the U.S. has gone too far and warned against further escalations as the U.S. military is preparing to send ships and planes into the Taiwan Strait. Kin said, quote, We have noted what the U.S. military has said about the U.S. military exercises and navigation in the Taiwan Strait, but I call on the U.S. to refrain and exercise restraint and not do anything to escalate tensions. If there are any moves to violate China's territorial integrity, China will respond, end quote. So as I've mentioned many times, they China responded to Pelosi's visit by holding such big military exercises. And Kin said that he did everything he could to try to stop Pelosi's trip. And it seemed like he was frustrated that his diplomatic efforts you know, didn't make any progress. He said, quote, I tried every means through every channel possible to prevent Pelosi's visit from happening, end quote. So from China's perspective, the congressional delegations, we just saw another congressional delegation visit Taiwan. They landed on Sunday and then met with the president and Taiwanese lawmakers on Monday. It shows that the U.S. is moving away from the one China policy, which is really the foundation of U.S.-China relations. They worked this out when relations were normalized in the 1970s. And Kin is kind of an interesting 
diplomat to me because he, you know, he was appointed to Washington last July when U.S.-China relations really at their lowest point since normalizing, lowest point in decades. And he brought initially he brought kind of a message of good relations, but he wasn't afraid to, you know, warn the U.S. against escalating tensions over Taiwan and, and in other areas. But ultimately, he says, you know, the U.S. and China can benefit from each other's prosperity. We would be better as partners. Um, but he's previously warned that, you know, he said it flat out that U.S. support for Taiwan could lead to war between the U.S. and China. It's the easiest way to get there, he says. And he reiterated this in a recent op-ed for The Washington Post where he explained China's objection to Pelosi's visit. He said, quote, Taiwan is one of the very few issues that might take China and the United States to conflict. Extra caution and a sense of responsibility are indispensable when it comes to Taiwan, end quote. So those two things, extra caution and responsibility, those are lacking in Washington. There's really nobody in Congress in the Biden administration that's saying, we got to take it easy with China. We got to pull back. This is the direction things are going. There's no sign that the U.S. is going to ease up on this issue. And there's no sign that China is going to back down either. So they're on a collision course. Okay, so the next one here, we got two from Jason Ditz about Turkey shelling and launching airstrikes in Syria. So there was some fighting in the Syrian Kurdish border town of Kobane. That's on the Turkish border. And it escalated into a heavy exchange of artillery fire between the Kurdish YPG and the Turkish military. Mortar attacks by the Kurds killed a Turkish soldier and wounded four others. Meanwhile, the Turkish shelling killed a 14-year-old child and wounded five other civilians in the border region. Turkish officials claimed responses to the Kurds across the border area. They're saying that it killed YPG fighters, Uh, but just a little flare-up there. And then there was also uh, Turkey launched airstrikes against the Syrian border outpost near the near Cobain also same thing in the same area and this these reports say that it killed at least 11 people that were labeled as fighters it's not clear um some reports say that three Syrian soldiers were killed so you know we've seen Turkey kind of signaling that it's going to launch a new invasion into northeast Syria and this flare-up could mean further escalation. And it's just a strange situation because, you know, the U.S. backs the Kurds in the Northeast there that Turkey considers to be terrorists and Turkey's a NATO member. It's just such a mess up in that area when uh, with Turkey and the U.S. being involved and also Russia and Syria, Syrian troops. It's just, you know, there's just this, all these scenarios where a major conflict could break out um and there's also in in the idlib province in the north there's al-qaeda and turkish backed groups um it's just such a mess and the u.s you know doesn't help the situation by being in syria really if the u.s pulled out of syria stopped backing the kurds the kurds have said many times that it you know a reproachment with Damascus is an option for them. So if the U.S. pulls out, they can work with Syria to prevent the Turkish invasion. But anyway, uh, the next one here, the U.S. and the EU say they're reviewing Iran's response to a nuclear deal proposal. 
So on Tuesday, U.S. and EU officials said they are reviewing Iran's response to what the EU called its final proposal to revive the Iran nuclear deal, known as the JCPOA. Iran delivered a written response to the EU on Monday night. The EU said that they're studying it in consultation with the U.S. and other JCPOA participants. State Department spokesman Ned Price also said that the U.S. was studying Iran's response and in consultations with the EU. So a day earlier on Monday, Price accused Iran of making extraneous demands and said that there was no more room for negotiations, kind of signaling that the deal wouldn't be revived. But his comments on Tuesday, they sounded a little more positive. And then an EU official told Bloomberg that Iran's response was constructive. I should have said a little earlier that we don't know the details of the EU proposal and we don't know the details of Iran's response. It's kind of a guessing game. But Iranian media has reported that Iran's response addressed three outstanding issues. They didn't specify them. They said that the U.S. had expressed its verbal flexibility on two of the issues, which Tehran would want in writing. And the IRNA said that the third issue is related to the guaranteeing the continuation of the JCPOA. So it's not really clear what that means. The Biden administration cannot guarantee that a future administration won't pull out of the deal. And there's a good chance that a Republican could get elected. And it's almost guaranteed that a Republican would would tear up this deal unless, you know, the the situation globally is completely different in a few years. Um, but Biden administration officials cited by, by Bloomberg said that there are no plans to remove the designation of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization. So that's the IRGC. The Trump administration designated that group as a foreign terror organization, which was unprecedented at the time because that's another nation's military. The U.S. never really did that before. And it's a sweeping designation. It means any current or former member of the IRGC is subject to U.S. sanctions. So even if you were enlisted, uh, conscripted, you know, forcibly conscripted into the IRGC, you know, years and years ago, and even if you didn't serve in a combat role, if you were a clerk for the IRGC, that means you can't travel to the U.S. And there was a report in the Associated Press earlier this year saying, you know, Iranian Americans, um, their families aren't able to visit and stuff because of these sanctions. So Iran wanted them lifted as part of reviving the JCPOA, which I think is reasonable because the Trump administration implemented that designation after it pulled out of the deal. But the U.S. refused. Biden said he wouldn't do it. And Iran's uh, dropped that demand, kind of showing how Iran is pretty flexible in these negotiations. And it's really because the Biden administration has taken a hardline approach. They're, they could have revived the deal pretty much at any time by lifting all of the Trump era sanctions. But instead, they said, we're not going to lift non-nuclear related sanctions. We're not going to lift sanctions that don't give Iran the economic benefits that the JCPOA is supposed to give is kind of their line. So because of that, they had to enter negotiations with Iran and um, it's just been this drag, long, dragged-out process, and I'll be pretty surprised if this actually happens, if they lift sanctions on Iran to return to this deal and get Iranian oil back on the global market, because it just seems like if they wanted to do it, 
they would have done it a long time ago. All right, so the last one here, Israel admits to killing five children at a cemetery in Gaza. So Israeli military officials have admitted that an Israeli airstrike was responsible for killing five Palestinian children at a cemetery in Gaza during Israel's recent three-day bombing campaign against the besieged enclave. The Israeli airstrike hit a cemetery next to the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza on August 7th. After the incident, Israeli officials claimed that the children could have been killed by a misfired rocket launched by the Palestinian group Islamic Jihad, but Israeli military officials told Haaretz on Tuesday that an Israeli army inquiry into the incident found that Israel was to blame. And the victims' ages, they ranged from 4 to 17, and most of them were from the same family. And they were killed as they sat next to their grandfather's grave in the cemetery. So it was something that these kids did pretty often was go to the cemetery to visit their grandfather's grave and hang out there in what you would assume would be a safe place, but they were killed by the Israelis. Um, The three-day bombing campaign killed 49 Palestinians, including 17 children. The bombardment started on August 5th. The initial Israeli airstrike killed an Islamic Jihad leader, but it also killed a five-year-old girl and several other Palestinians. Israel is still claiming that some of the dead were killed by an by errant Islamic Jihad rockets, but that account has been disputed. Um, there are some other incidents that we're not really sure what happened. The Israeli, the Israeli military's the Isra- excuse me, the Israeli military officials speaking to Haaretz claimed that a similar incident that killed eight civilians was caused by an errant rocket. So uh, we're just not sure about that situation yet. Either way, Israel started this bombing campaign. They launched it, claiming that there was a threat from the Islamic Jihad, but there was no public threats. And it's just we would have to take Israel's word to believe that there was. Um, and after Israel agreed to a ceasefire in Gaza, we saw President Biden and other U.S. officials express strong support for this latest bombing campaign in Gaza. Biden said he was proud of U.S. support for Israel, and the U.S. ambassador to Israel said that the U.S. was fully supportive of the country's actions in Gaza. So that's it for the news today. Uh, we got a lot of good viewpoints as usual. Um, if you want to contact the show, you could email me at news at antiwar.com. Follow me on Twitter. DM me there. Support the show, antiwar.com slash donate. Subscribe on YouTube, even if you listen on audio. I just want to get those numbers pumped up. Pretty happy with how the show has started. We got a lot of listeners for a podcast that's only a few weeks old, and I appreciate all the positive feedback, and I will be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks.